Um, welcome to the Property Funder podcast. I've got uh, Vedrana here today. Vedrana, where, where do we find you today? So today I'm in Manchester at, uh, at a hotel we opened this year, uh, the residence in Manchester Piccadilly. Uh, awesome. So you what t- what time? Uh, so you live in London. What time did you have to head up to Manchester for for, for your, I suppose your meetings today up in Manchester? Well, it's Friday morning, so of course there were loads of issues <laughs> on the train. <laughs> it took me probably about four hours <laughs> oh, my uh, to get to get here. So yeah, and, it's been. And fun. you live in you live like near central London as well, so you know you should be used to two and bit hours to Manchester and and, and job done. So four hours that's, that is a pain. Um, yeah. So, and, and I suppose you, you're in uh, being in Manchester, taking the train to Manchester is very hot, uh, hot, hot, hot button topic today. Uh, this week, of course, with the announcement that uh, HS2 um, had been had been scrapped, uh, at least the, the the leg from Birmingham to Birmingham to Manchester. Um, what's your read of that? How, how what's your response to that? You know, and 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 don't pull your punches. You know, spicy hot takes are, is what we want to hear here. <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. I mean, look, my my personal view is that they've they've spent so much money on the project to date that I find it a bit ludicrous. Um, whether the time difference, you know, will make a huge difference to Manchester as a city, I think Manchester will be absolutely fine. Um, you know, the normally two-hour train journey is not so bad. It would have certainly been better to have a much shorter commute, which uh, would have would have made my my life and many other commuters much much easier. But look, I, there there are many things with this sense that uh, I'm wholeheartedly supporting. Let's put it this way. Okay, so um, and Bedrona, let, let, we've obviously jumped straight into uh, jump straight into where you are. Uh, and what you're doing, uh, what you're doing there. Um, tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, your full name, the name of your company, and and, and what what the company does. Um, so yeah. we can put some context as to why you've got. I mean, people might have guessed that you invest in hotels, but let's maybe have a bit more context than that. No, absolutely. So uh, Vedrana Riley, founder uh, and CEO of a company called Cial Capital, were investors, owners, asset managers um, in UK real estate. Uh, we tend to focus on trading assets, um, not that we don't do, you know, the most traditional estate, i.e. resi and offices, but our, I would say our, specialist, our specialism really lies in hotels. We've done a lot of them over the years, anything from hostels to five-star golf and country clubs. And uh, I would say over the past probably five to seven years, I've done a lot of extended stay, which is a sector I'm particularly interested in and very, very supportive of. Okay. Uh, and. Um... Maybe let's 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 talk about let, let's go back to the sort of the start of your career and and uh, and, and and then we can kind of work work our way into how um, CL Capital came to being and 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 has evolved into the business that it is now. Um, you know, like most of our like most of our guests, um, you know, you're obviously a very accomplished, uh, successful individual. Um, you have to be in the real estate industry, of course, um, but um, you know. You've, you know, you, you. I think you've probably had to battle maybe one or two more hurdles than some, some of our other guests, perhaps. Um, you know, coming from, uh, coming from a different country. So, um, talk to us about your kind of where you grew up and, and then how you found your way into the UK real estate market. And obviously, don't, don't spare any details. Um, I think people love the story and the journey. No, for sure. So I was born in the former Yugoslavia, place called Sarajevo, big mix from that neck of the woods. Um, age seven, obviously, there was the war. Uh, so we moved to France, uh, 
my 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 family on my mom's side have had French links. I had a couple of aunties living in Paris. So moved there and kind of had to start from from scratch. I mean, it was really more for my parents than uh, than for me because obviously being seven, I do remember everything. But uh, but yeah, so learned French, went to French schools. I spent I would say probably most of my most of my life in in France. Um, I studied in Paris. I went to the Sorbonne. I was always very very hardworking. I think coming from a different country and having to start again kind of makes you more resilient to a lot of things because you know you do face a lot of challenges your cultural differences and all of that and um, did my second year of uni in Germany came back to Paris finished my, my bachelor's at the time and then decided uh, I was bored of Paris as, as you can be sometimes believe it or not <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and decided to come to London uh, to do my master's absolutely fell in love with the city I mean, the, the first few months in London are very, very challenging. Anything from finding a half decent apartment to opening bank accounts. And uh, but, you know, once you're settled in, it's the best city in the world, in my opinion. So I've never left. I've been in, in London since 2006, till end of 2006. Finished my, uh, my master's, uh, which I did in international business and finance. And then obviously been in city, uh, very naturally graduated or gravitated rather towards the financial services sector. Uh, I originally wanted to go more like M&A, private equity, and so found myself uh, interning to start with, with an American PE house that was primarily investing in the emerging markets. Um, so did all sorts of weird and wonderful deals uh, from you know uh, bicycle manufacturing plants in China. Uh, we were selling those bicycles to, Af to the African markets because there it's the cheapest mean of, of transport. That's where I first touched with hotels as well. We did a couple of Marriott's in Africa, but I was buying companies at the time. I was less in touch with the core real estate side of things. So I was more looking at balance sheets and, and all of those things. Um, and, uh, and then basically after working 24-7, being on call all the time, I decided uh, to for, for, for a bit of a change. I got headhunted to go work for a wonderful man uh, called Peter Cohen. I don't know if you ever came, came across Peter, actually. I don't think, uh, I, know, I, don't think I know Peter very well, no. So, I mean, he sadly passed away a few years ago, but he was an absolute mentor to me. Really, really wonderful man. He taught me a lot of what I know today about real estate. And I was in my early 20s at the time. And uh, I was talking like a 70 year old about how the UK yield curve had had, had <laughs> changed and evolved over the years. And I did get quite a lot of uh, funny comments about but how, how old are you? And my answer always used to be, I have a great surgeon, darling. Yeah. Um, and um, yes, yeah, so I cut my teeth. <laughs> he made me a partner quite quite early on, which was great. And uh, and he gave me a great word of advice at the time. He basically said to me, he's like, look, look, V, as and when you set up your business, because I know you will never forget to make sure that you have about a couple of years of overheads on a, on a blocked account to make sure that, you know, it takes you through because there will be challenges, you know, it will be a rocky road and, uh, but, you know, you will succeed. I have no doubt about that. And uh, from there I met, um, I met basically my next boss effectively. Um, so I ended up going back to the real estate private equity world this time and uh, ended up uh, helping with the setup of the UK operations of a company called Bridgepoint Ventures. They invested at the time in all sorts of uh, real estate. We were doing basically JV equity, um, but 80% of our portfolio were hotels. So we invested a lot in the UK from Portsmouth all the way up to Aberdeen. 
And uh, and that's really where I learned a lot about hotels. And when you're providing equity and you're doing JVs, all sorts of things tend to go wrong. Um, not that really is always a mess, but there are always challenges. And we've had to pick up quite a lot of pieces. And that's really what made me an asset manager, you know, having to replan, rethink business plans, completely change everything, go to the ground. I ended up being the responsible person for a nursing home in uh, in Edinburgh. Wow. <laughs> uh, because uh, JV partner at the time decided to skip town. Um, so, yeah, all sorts of things. And uh, after a period, I decided that, you know, it was all nice and well to be building businesses for others. But uh, I was keen to give it a crack. So 2015, I started Ciel, uh, initially in JV with another company that uh, didn't really work out as it well, didn't go in the direction I was hoping it would go. So I bought them out after one year and then really one man band at the time, one woman band at the time. And uh, and we've grown from there. I mean, it's been a rocky road, as you alluded to. And as Peter had forewarned me, it was likely to be. Um, so back in 15, was looking at some incredible projects in JV with some of the big instits. And then obviously the Brexit vote happened. So that can't crawl a lot of the things we decided to do. Um, we were looking at some projects in, in Scotland and Aberdeen and other places. And then obviously we had all the noises about the referendums and the oil prices crashed and all sorts of things have happened over the period. And but, you know, we're we've hung in there. Uh, my team is now about seven people at HQ level and then every single project resources uh, for itself. I co-founded uh, Stowaway. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept, I, but I, I, uh, I, I, very ESG, very am, yeah. And, uh, you know, but we started that journey back in 15. I in fact looked at that project initially back in 13 when I was still in PE. And, uh, you know, from, from, with all of the challenges that, you know, a network rail site can, uh, can entail, we managed to get that off the ground, then open Stowaway in 18, having literally developed the brand standards from scratch, picking the mattresses, the toiletries, all of the fun stuff. And yeah, it's been it's been trading really, really well. Obviously, we've had COVID, we've had all sorts of things. But uh, but yeah, we, I'm pleased to say we don't have any debts in that project. The plan is to do more. Uh, but obviously, finding the right opportunity and the right project, as opposed to just racing for it, is is certainly the the take we're we're having at the moment. But yeah, certainly keen to to grow that particular brand. I mean, look, there's there's a, there's obviously a, a huge amount to unpack there, and some some fascinating uh, some fascinating um, anecdotes that that you threw in uh, threw in the mix. Um, just talking about sort of high level now. Let's talk about the scale of CL. You obviously mentioned you've got seven, uh, the seven full-time employees. Um, naturally, a lot of sort of propco uh, or you know propco slash investment uh, businesses in the real estate sector don't don't always employ huge numbers of people um, because because you're obviously able to contract lots of the skill sets from outside the from outside the business, um, and you don't generally need. All of these functions to be vertically integrated because um, you because there's so many consultants available um, on on a project by project basis. But I suppose at sort of high level, what you know, talk us through this. this you know, what what what's on your project book at the moment? What are the things that you're working on? Um, both you know assets under management and the the sort of things that you're looking at and look things that you're looking to do going forwards. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of the one of the mandates that's kept us very, very busy during the pandemic is um, is basically building up an income producing portfolio for for one of our investor clients. And uh, so they, their first deal in the UK was uh, acquiring our residence in, which is in uh, which is in Manchester, which we obviously opened this year and which we are working quite hard to make sure, you know, it hits the right sort of numbers because that's where you create the value. It's an income strategy, as I mentioned, so cash is king, obviously. Um, we've also taken over an amazing little property in Edinburgh, which we've just reopened as uh, the uh, Four Points by Sheraton Haymarket. And that's also trading really, really well. I was there earlier this week. So I've been uh, traveling across the, the country quite a bit, making sure that all the things in, we've put in place have been followed and that the guests are happy and that you know, the, the, we keep, we maintain a tight cost control. Um, we also have the IBIS Bristol Temple Meads, uh, which is uh, which is leased to Aqua Invest. And that one, we're hopefully going to be starting a CapEx program, so refurbishment program till end this year, with a view of uh, reopening uh, the hotel. Well, we're going to keep it open, but re relaunching the hotel, I would say, <clears throat> once all the works are done, probably June next year. And I'm looking at a few other exciting bits and bobs to tag onto the portfolio that I can't talk too much about because there's not an awful lot on the market. So it will be very, very easy to pinpoint which ones I'm working on, but uh, certainly never boring. Why do, why do you think there's a lack of stock on the market? Is that is that to do with the fact that um, with interest rates being higher, the you know yields of yields have been pushed out, and therefore people that are, that are owning operating assets don't want to don't want to sell them at a discount or actually is it just because you know the because they're the operating assets are performing quite well that uh, and and ever and people are starting to see or have a vision of growth for a lot of these these assets that actually people want to hang on to their assets and, and watch the, the revenues increase or is it something completely different that and I, and I ask these questions because I know absolutely nothing about uh, that sector other it. other than <laughs> other than staying in them occasionally. <laughs> I mean, you've pinpointed a lot of them, to be frank. Uh, hotels have been trading exceptionally well. Um, you know, the top line is very, very strong. And, you know, September, for example, was an incredible month across many, many different markets. We have visibility over, you know, places like Bridgewater and Somerset have had a very strong September across across the estate we will look after and we work very closely with with a number of owner operators and we kind of drop in and out of uh, their projects and their portfolios as well you know we know that september has been really really strong across markets we know in manchester we've done exceptionally well as well in edinburgh it's been really really good so you know basically the trading side is good inflation is a challenge employment remains a challenge uh, Brexit and COVID, you know, really the combo of the two have meant that we've lost some incredible uh, employees in the hospitality and leisure sectors, and you know, across across the all all industries really. But you're you're sensing it and you're feeling it a lot more. You know, service is not where it used to be. You know, it's very difficult to recruit. The the guys you recruit need so much training. Um, you know, to to bring them up to speed, and I think some of it is cultural differences as well. You know, whereas perhaps some of the some of the people we had from Europe and Eastern Europe had slightly different um, service expectations and standards. 
So there's certainly a, a bit of a rocky road ahead from a pure operations and cost control standpoint. So obviously, the utilities haven't helped. And as you mentioned, the interest rates, obviously, that's that's not helping. But overall, hotels are trading really, really well. So yes, uh, what it what it means for a lot of the owners is that, you know, you're you're hanging in there and you're more than hanging in there. You know, a lot of people have been able to cope with you know, the interest rate increases. I mean, obviously it's not been ideal, but people are able to to cover, to cover their bills and pay their interest. And and that's that's been really, really good. Banks have been, I must say, pretty, pretty good. They've been, you know, they've been good partners across a lot of our projects. Uh, even if ultimately you've ended up with some covenant breaches simply because the interest rates have gone so high, you know, in comparison to where they were predicted to go. The covenants that were set three, four, five years ago clearly not being met, you know, from a pure ICR standpoint. But banks have been have been quite user friendly when it comes to that. They've not been really pushing, you know, a lot of the people we know and a lot of the people we work with that were asked for the matter to, you know, sell because everyone does appreciate that on paper there has been a pricing correction. You know, everyone says that deals have softened. If you get valuation done, Today, you will probably end up with a with a lower red book than you would have had a couple of years ago. Um, and so if you can afford to hold on to your assets and if you're not under on the pressure to sell, then, yeah, you're probably hanging in there. I think what's um, what, however, you know, is likely to happen over the next few months is that, you know, those interest rate hikes are starting to really bite because ultimately you end up working for your bank. You know, your a lot of your bottom line goes to pay obviously your your costs and uh and i think you know the the stuff we are starting to see is a general fed up you know people because in the hotel industry what's quite interesting is that you do have some groups that own you know large portfolios of hotels and you do have a number of owner operators that have sizable uh, sizable operations but equally, you have a lot of what I call or what we call mom and pop operations, you know, who have maybe one or two that they've run for a number of years. And, you know, the hotels are a bit tired, so they're probably not trading as well as some of the others. There's obviously all the ESG considerations these days, which which do impact trading because we're starting to see a lot of the corporates, you know, booking with certain hotels because they, they take the right ESG credentials and not staying at hotels that didn't that does that don't take them. There's obviously the EPC um 2020, well 2030, and there's those goals as well, which you know may or may not have an impact on some of the properties. So yeah, there are an awful, an awful lot of different things, but but you've nailed it to be honest with you. You really have. It's uh, you know, hotels are trading well. Um, interest rates are high, but people are able to cope with them. There's been a pricing correction, so if you don't have to sell, you're not selling. And um, yeah, that's that's generally it. So you know what uh, you think you do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose the um, I, I, one of the questions I've got is, and, and I ask this because it's it, for me, it gives me a sense of what's what's happening in the wider economy, and 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 ultimately what's going to happen with interest rates in the UK moving forwards. And, it, you know, one of the sort of analogies I, I will, I'd always look for, or not analogies, maybe maybe one of the bellwethers I look for is that, can you get a reservation in a, you know, half decent restaurant, let's say, you know, if, if you live in a reasonably upmarket area, you know, if, can you get a reservation easily at, say, your local Ivy restaurant on a Wednesday evening at eight o'clock? And if you can't, then 
the economy, you know, the, the people have still got plenty of discretionary income to spend. I say the Ivy, but you know, you can choose any, you know, any mid to upper up market restaurant uh, for that matter. Um, if on the other hand, actually, you can get reservations quite easily, I would say, well, actually, maybe the economy's starting to slow down because people aren't people are tightening their belts. I've been working under a bit of an assumption that people are starting to tighten their belts. Um, so I'm kind of curious as to, from a hotel perspective, um, whether that's something that you expect to see in the coming months, or or do you actually think that for the vast majority of hotels, um, the reason why people are staying in them is typically it's not in it's not really a discretionary spend for a lot of the for a lot of hotel visitors and therefore you know it'll only be on it'll only be on the margins that you'll see see differences like what's your what's your expectation for for the performance of occupancy of hotel uh hotels and you know similar types of properties for the next nine to twelve months i mean there are there are two things when it comes to hospitality there's how busy you are, i.e. your occupancy, and there's how much you're able to charge, which is what we call the, the ADR, which stands for average daily rates, which okay. is effectively your net, you know, your net booking. Um, you know, XVAT is so obviously your customer pays VAT, but uh, you you have to pay that over to HMRC. And um, and there there are two different things that we've seen happening in in hotels, and I think I think it does give us quite a good uh, look ahead. So firstly, I think on, on the pure corporate side of things, I think people have realized that you can't do everything on Teams or on Zoom. You know, the, the human factor and sitting down with someone and spending time with someone, especially if you're negotiating a contract or an acquisition, you know, there's nothing that could ever replace having everyone in one room and shaking hands at the end of a, however long it takes to get it done. Yeah. You know, so I think I think there's genu a genuine return to, you know, we have to meet people face to face. And, you know, like for me, for example, if I don't go around the hotels, I tend to lose touch of what's happening in the properties because I can look at a PL and I can read the PL and it's absolutely not an issue. But when I look at that PL and I, I read my, you know, my GM's report, it's not going to tell me what I, what I really want to know. I'm not going to know that I have maybe a couple of rooms offline because there's been a leak. You know, they, they may highlight it, but they may not. I'm not going to know that I'm having a staffing issue with because, you know, the chef is not showing up often enough and that he's taking too much holiday, for example. And those things and those conversations you can only get from a face-to-face -face standpoint. So long-winded answer, but I think the corporates are returning. So there, we're not really talking about disposable income. No. Now, at the same time, I listened to an incredible guy um, who works with Visa, and he presented some uh, some fascinating stats, which, you know, I think we're all getting a bit of a feel for. And, you know, we're back to your example about restaurants and booking the Ivy or equally going to a craft coffee place and having to queue for 20 minutes for, you know, five or six pound coffee. And uh, and basically what's what. what key stats and obviously credit cards are a very good benchmark to look at you know where people are spending their money is that people are choosing to stop buying stuff but to in, to basically spend their whatever disposable income they have in experiences mm -hmm. and the experiences are eating in a really nice restaurant the experiences are traveling staying in a nice hotel 
And uh, and I think because people and, you know, and I think COVID has some something to do with that as well, because we've all been locked in for, you know, extended period of periods of time. I think everyone gets the gist that, you know, I want to get out there. I want to do things. And I think, well, that fills me with quite a lot of confidence looking forwards for hospitality. I mean, a lot of the projects we get involved with. You know, our, our main USPs are having that mix of mm-hmm. leisure and corporate demand. And, uh, you know, we, we rarely do the pure leisure stuff or the pure corporate stuff. I think having the two is really uh, what, what we like to focus on anyway. But uh, but, yeah, it's really the mix of the two that gives me a lot of confidence um, looking forward, basically, both in terms of occupancy and ADR. Now, looking at how much the cost of staying in a hotel has gone up recently, you know, ADRs have reached some incredible levels. Uh, if you look at markets like Paris and London, I mean, it's gone completely nuts. You know, you five, six, seven, eight hundred pounds to stay in a half decent place in Paris these days. And um, and is that sustainable? I think that's where I would have more reservations is how much you can push those boundaries and whether that pricing should kind of stop for a period or, you know, perhaps reduce a little bit to make sure that you fill your hotel sufficiently. But uh, the you know revenue management in in hotels is is a bit of a dark art and uh, and has a genuine value. So you know I think I think people will continue traveling and staying in hotels is the bottom line. I think occupancy levels will remain strong. I think from a pure pricing standpoint, I think you know it's probably not going to grow hugely from where we are today. But um, you know only time will tell. So so I think. I- I suppose my my takeaway from what you're saying is that the the wider economy may start to soften and is likely softening, but the hospitality industry will be insulated from that because of and I think this is definitely true of uh, you know sort of the younger generation, I suppose the generation maybe that comes after you and I, uh, where you know they they definitely value experience experiences over things. Um, so I, I can see some I can see some logic and rationale in that. But I think the other thing, the other the other conclusion, I'm, I guess, that you've, you've come to is that likely the cost of staying in a hotel or the cost of hospitality will, will probably come down um, a little <laughs> bit um, because there will be a, people will have a little bit less disposable income, I guess, as a consequence of a weaker economy and and as well the um, reduced uh, I suppose that they reduced spending power because of inflation and higher interest rates. Um, can we talk? Can you can we talk through your business model a little bit, please? Because it's um, it's still a little bit of a mystery to me. And uh, and so what are the various strands in which you your business is able to to generate revenue and, and, and add, you know, I suppose, and, and suppose create wealth for you and you and your, your partners? Very good question, and I, and I will respond very honestly. So when when I originally founded Ciel, the plan was always twofold. It was always to do our own projects in JV with what I used to do before, you know, PE or family offices and things like that, and the asset management side, which effectively keeps the lights on um, on a day-to-day basis. Because when you are developing whatever you're developing, whether it's residential office or hotel, it always takes time. You know, you have to buy the assets, you have to obviously do whatever value add you're going to do to it. So often through refurbishment or construction. 
Um, and then obviously you will have a stabilization period before you're able to exit. And, and then obviously you have different, different growth strategies. Um, the asset management side is uh, is income based, so it's it's all fee based effectively. So it it really depends. Like we we work with some incredible clients that have, you know, that we worked with for a very very long time. Some of which were my former JV partners, um, and um, and yeah, as I said our pricing model is very very really varies from client to client. So there are some where we effectively just sit as, or just sit, we sit more as a strategic advisor uh, or an FD, you know, a remote FD, but uh, we're there to, you know, whenever they want to buy something or they're considering a change in strategy or they want to to have another look at where they can add, add value within their existing portfolio or even, you know, relook at some of the refinancings and where they can perhaps reduce the cost of capital or borrow for much or much longer periods of time to avoid having to refinance every three or five years and things like that. Um, and then we have we have clients where we literally do everything. So anything from making sure the VAT returns are filed on time to making the physical payments uh, to suppliers to you know very hands-on asset management, development management. And um, yeah, so it's really a mixture of retainers and success fees. So when there's a cash event, then obviously we get our success fees or when there's something that, that does happen. So, so yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, it sounds like, you, you know, you can, you offer, you offer a range of services on the asset management side from, you know, your, your involvement can be quite light touch to you can essentially offer an investor complete, complete hands off, uh, they can effectively own the physical real estate where a hotel or other hospitality asset sits, but you, you effectively do all of the ownership level asset management for them, at, like you said, right down to filing the VAT returns. Um, so yeah, I mean, if I if I uh, if I ever see an asset where I'd like like it to be a hotel, I think I'll be picking up the phone uh, and saying, right, let's uh, let, let's make this work. Um, Okay, so that's fascinating. And in terms of like the direction of CL, where where do you see the future of CL? Where where in five to ten years time, where what what would you like it to look like? Where what's the direction you like it to go in? Um, very good question again. <laughs> so since 2019, uh, we've decided to really grow the asset management side um, because a we love doing it, and b we're pretty good at it and it's and frankly speaking it's a it's a nice source of income for us um so what i would like to continue doing and what we as a team would like to continue doing is expanding um our asset management portfolio effectively mm -hmm. and uh, and broadening that um i would like to start doing some of our own projects again you know i would really really like to to grow stowaway so I, I really do want to to make some time to to do that uh, I'd love to do, you know, another Manchester, um, and uh, I'd love to do, you know, obviously more hotels. There's, uh, there's another project I've been working on in the background, which I'm, which I'm quite excited about, um, which is basically a cross between Soho Farmhouse, what the guys have done at Birch, but a lot more family orientated. So target markets, you know, people like us with kiddos, but who also like really, really, really nice experiences. And that want to stay in something that's that's really nicely designed, that has all the facilities you need, 
but at the same time that's not so much on steroids um, <laughs> in terms of you know uh, so some of the other bits and, and also the pricing you know I absolutely love the four seasons in Hampshire but talking about rates that's gone beyond <laughs> and good for them but uh, I'm no longer their target market let's put it that way so you know it's a uh, yeah it's something I'm quite close to so I've been looking around literally the country trying to find the the right opportunity and I think we're edging closer there there's a couple of, I think we, we we may end up transacting on so so yeah it's something what's, that I'd really like to develop what's the what's the thing what would you say the the key thing holding you back from doing more of your own projects is it is it just the opportunities or because um, I I'm I can't believe you haven't got access to capital the, the the requisite capital to make it work I mean we've funded things very differently over the years you know uh, the first stowaway was a was a small fund effectively um with with a few investors and we decided to do that one pure cash no debt at all uh, because a it was proof of concept and b we you know we didn't want to to have the burden necessarily of you know having to uh, having to pay interest and things like that at the time because it was a pilot project. Um, so f funding and capital is available for the right opportunities for sure. We do have relationships with obviously a lot of the the P houses and family offices and and things like that. So money, I would say money is not necessarily the issue. I think I think the the debt market has certainly tightened, but I would I would link the money side to returns. And unless you find the right opportunity that's throwing the right sort of returns, A, I wouldn't get out of bed for it. And B, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not going to be attractive to, to any of the parties we work with. Um, so, so I would say, yeah, finding the right opportunity in the right location. I mean, it's real estate, you know, location, location, location is really key. And um, yeah, buying it at the right price and delivering it within a certain time frame is absolutely essential. So yeah. Um, I mean that's that's uh, that sort of chimes really. Um, I think that if I think about the strategic land business that I'm involved in, the 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 thing that's holding that back is not the lack of it's not it's not the lack of money because I think there's plenty of money there if you know where to look I think the challenge is is definitely the lack of opportunity um I thought it was interesting um hearing you talk about the the, the focus of growing the asset management side of your business um because I think that that is that probably is the in your case I think that is a, a smart approach to growing the business and growing because ultimately at the end of the day it doesn't I think sometimes you can be very focused on owning assets and, and it's, it can be very ego, very ego driven to be like, look, I own this and I built this. But at the end of the day, it's like the a successful business is one that has longevity and can sustain itself and can grow. And I think that it's a lot easier to grow uh, to, to grow the asset management side because it's it's not capital intensive. And unlike unlike doing your own projects, you, there are far more targets and far more opportunities that you can that you can sink your teeth into to grow the business, more business development opportunities than um, than there would be um, than there would be on on the on the direct asset side. Um, it, when you first mentioned it, I, I was thinking I was, I was sort of comparing it with maybe um, you know serviced office type model or you know you know shared workspace type type models, you know still operational real estate businesses, um, but actually 
ironically, I think that there's a lot more opportunities on the real estate side on the in the office space because there's there there is and there will continue to be a um you know a, a structural change in how offices are being occupied um whereas i think in your case actually that isn't as much of an that isn't as much of an issue i think in the service office space the it, it, in a lot of ways the best growth will come from being you know leasing and franchising um, rather than trying to own uh, own and operate, but in, I think in your case, it's it, the dynamic is different, and it's actually really the it's very hard to find opportunities whether you're do, whether you're operating it or owner operating it or or, or leasing or whatever um, to make just getting the numbers stack stack up sounds like it's uh, the biggest challenge. So um, really interesting to hear about that. Um, I want to actually take I, I want to just rewind a little bit um, because I want to go back a little bit to the beginning of your life because you sort of touched on it but some of our younger listeners probably haven't you know those maybe who who were born after you know born in the late 90s or or, or even in the early 2000s probably haven't got any sense of what the what the Balkan conflict was like um, so you left you would have leave you would have left Sorry, over what, roughly 93, 94, that sort of time? 92. 92, okay. And your family, so obviously Bosnia was quite mi- quite a mixed uh, community. Were you from a Croatian family or were you from a, you know, what, what sort of what sort of family were you from? Um, and and uh, were there any particular reasons why you had to leave Sarajevo other than the, part, the fact that it was being bombed to smithereens? Um, so I, I, I'm exactly what a lot of my friends pre-war are, effectively, which is I'm a huge mix. Right. Okay. I'm a humongous mix. Um, you know, in my family, I mean, talking about talking about religions actually is very is very relevant. But in my family, we have Orthodox, Muslim, Catholics. Like we're literally a huge mix. And growing up, you know, I had two Christmas, I had two Easter. Um, you know, I had Eid. I basically had presence all the time it was very very good <laughs> and we celebrated everything you know we really did celebrate every everyone else you know everyone's culture my parents weren't religious at all um but you know we just celebrated everything and we embraced everyone's cultures and that's exactly what it was pre-war you know we all lived together very happily actually and we we had actually great quality of life um because i mean the miss the misperception about the former Yugoslavia, and you know, I'm I'm still struggling to say, you know, I'm Bosnian or Croatian or Serbian. For me, it's like I'm from the former Yugoslavia. That's yeah. what I'm. That's where I'm from. Um, now, the fact that they're all different countries, it's it's irrelevant to me. But um, but um, yes. Yeah, so, you know, if you look at Sarajevo city center. There's an old mosque that was built during the Ottoman Empire. There's a stunning cathedral. There's a Jewish temple. And uh, there's an Orthodox church all within like a very, very short walking distance. Yeah, it's it it, it sounds like it was a uh, it sounds like people I mean, it's it's probably easy to be a bit rose centered about it, but it sounds like people live pretty harmonious, harmoniously um, for a long time. Presum- uh, presumably, presumably, um, particularly Yugoslavia under the 
the, the dictator Tito. He, I think he probably was I'll quite stop good. Stop you there, my dear. He's not. He, he was not a dictator. He was not a dictator. Okay. <laughs> he was but, not. <laughs> he, I have in mind that he was a sort of benevolent dictator, and people that, that people <laughs> that he was pretty good at keeping everyone living together reasonably harmoniously. But he was. But he was yeah. very good at keeping everyone together for sure. Yeah. Um, so, but so, but the reason for and um, the reason for moving to France was just the war and just wanting to be to escape and be safe. Is that the main the main driver behind that? Hundred percent, absolutely. I mean, basically, when the war started, no one no one believed it was going to last, and at least my parents didn't believe it was going to last. But their first reflex was get the children to safety. So my my mother and the three of us left. Um, you know on a bus and on a military airplane and uh, and my father stayed back because we really didn't think it was going to last um, and so yeah ended up in France and didn't see my father for a couple of years actually because um, you know once once the, the war properly kicked in it was very difficult to leave. Mm. Um, and, and so during so during those times I mean you, were, you must have been quite scared uh, scared for your father. What did he do? What, what was he? What was he up to um, during those times? Was he was he having to fight, or was he just kind of going about his 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 daily life? Well, I mean, you you can't really have a normal life when when the city where you live is is being no. bombed, right? No. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, my my auntie, so my father's uh, sister, was um, she she helped. She worked alongside the Casque Bleu. And she basically, you know, was there distributing food, doing all of the things that you would expect the, the amazing woman she is to do. And uh, and my father did help a lot with all of that side of things. I mean, we never went into a huge level of detail. My father didn't really fight an awful lot, um, but he helped where he could. Um, and yeah, that's, that's that. Well, it, it must. Yeah, I guess it's. Uh must have been a, a difficult time without question um and you must have been uh, you there must have been a huge relief when uh, when he was i suppose finally able to come and join you in uh, in in france um was. I, I i quite enjoyed your comment about um that you managed to get bored of paris i don't know was it george bernard Shaw? is that if you're bored of paris you're bored of life uh but uh, <laughs> uh um just um Moving, moving forwards in in you in your career, um, and thank you for sharing that, uh, that 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 segment from your past. Um, you talked about some of the challenges that you experienced. What do you reckon was the, the most difficult challenge that you had during the during the uh, during the time that you've had at CL? Would you say was it Brexit, or was it COVID, or was it something else, or something else completely different? Um, biggest challenge. There's been a few. <laughs> um, I would say I would say it wasn't necessarily linked to the day-to-day -day running of the business, but I think it was just the overall situation. You know, homeschooling a four or five-year-old whilst trying to run a business. Um, you know, whilst trying to do all of those things was probably the most challenging part. Yeah. And the most challenging time. So I would say it's probably more the circumstances and the actual life side that was difficult. Well, I, I can imagine. I think a lot of working parents, uh, particularly working mums, will have experienced, will have had similar experiences in that regard. It's um, 
you know I, I was fortunate I didn't have to dip in too much into the into the homeschooling uh during that time and um you know my wife took a lot of the burden um you know and there, there was a lot of burden because we we have three so uh, that, that definitely wasn't easy at all um during covid what was the impact on on the business in particular were you know was it harder to you know was it harder to get revenue because hotels weren't able to hotels had no occupancy so therefore there was secession on rents and things like that and therefore the 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 investors that you work with weren't particularly on the asset management side weren't able to um you know weren't able to pay uh, pay you anything um how, how did that play out yeah i'm to be honest with you our clients actually and our investors have been very supportive they've really been very supportive so the majority of them basically kept on paying our fees i would say what was probably the most challenging was really the, uncer the uncertainty because you know the rules kept changing uh, if you look at hotels in particular you know do you shut when do you shut are you able to reopen where you are allowed to sell the rooms to how do you staff the hotels? Do you make your employees redundant? Do you put them on furlough? It was it was all those aspects that were really, really tricky and exhausting, to be honest with you, just because as soon as you think you've you've you figured out the strategy and how you're gonna deal with things for a period of time, you know, the rules kept changing. And so that I think was probably the most challenging side of things. I mean, inevitably, you know, of course, cash dried up for for a lot of the those businesses, and therefore, you know, we were also not putting our handouts um, in the same way, you know, and asking for things that, you know, we would have potentially been unreasonable if that makes sense. I would say the most disappointing one uh, during this period was we had agreed a JV with uh, with one of the instits, and uh, we were going to develop a pretty cool hotel in uh, in South London. And uh, obviously, we had the few days after lockdown, the you know the meeting request, and uh, and obviously the instead turned around and said, "Sorry, guys, we can't do this." Uh, and are so, they? And I presume they probably uh, they picked up the phone nine months later or a year later and said, uh, "That that deal can is can we do it again?" And I guess it's it probably went right. Well, I mean, it's it's not really their style, to be honest with you, to no. to admit to admit to, <laughs> to things like that, which, you know, um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's look, we we still have a good relationship with them and all of that. There's absolutely no no issue there, but you know, it's disappointing. And trying to find an investor, actually, when you're when you're locked down, trying to speak to people was was very challenging. I mean, we we did try to replace them, but yeah, it wasn't happening. No, it's a very, I guess, it's very difficult time to try and um to try and find new money um i mean in the debt in in the specialist lending space for example um you know all you know all funding options for specialist lenders ground to halt for a, for a period of time you know the, the entire market ground to halt and you can you can run around the market trying to replace them re replace that capital and i think it's, it's like any time that there's a that there's sort of a uh, distressed event or this you know or, or perceptions from an institutional investors will be more negative that is not the time to try and raise capital as um, you know as, as you'll as you'll know well um mm. you, you're ultimately going to end up banging your head against a brick wall so i can understand why you 
would have struggled to replace that capital because I, I think everyone across the capital market space would have would have been experiencing very similar things. And I suppose it's one thing experiencing the, that sort of disappointment, um, the, that sort of disappointment. But did you see differences in how people you worked with handled themselves and conducted themselves? You know, did did you kind of see people's true colours in that in that period of adversity? Um, I think, I mean, most of the people I've interacted with and I, and I work with on a, on a regular basis, I think, you know, we were all kind of fighting to, to stay alive kind of thing and uh, survive the homeschooling combo with everything else. Actually, in my team, I have quite a lot of women and uh, most of us have children. So we kind of all experience very, very similar challenges. Um, so we end up spending a lot of time on the phone, you know, talking about work, but also talking about <clears throat> perhaps more personal things than we would have normally talked about, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I think I think everything that's happened, you know, having your kids drop into Zoom and and all of that has softened. I think the way a lot of people feel about what's professional and what's not professional you know, um, we were doing some some work on a on a built to rent scheme in London for for one of our one of our clients. We're helping with you know how do you monetize some of the public areas you have to provide, you know, as part of obviously the the built to rent or you know the co living type concepts. And we had obviously multiple calls. The project was under construction. There were there were lots of things happening. And you know we, and it was very sweet because one of the guys that came across very kind of you know. Um, my daughter kind of stuck her head in on one of the Zoom calls, like, oh, we have Mia joining the meeting this morning. And it was basically just very sweet. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I think I think it's made people a bit more human in a way. And I think, you know, what's what's interesting is that a lot of people are now also talking a lot more about their life commitments. So, oh, uh, I've got, uh, oh, I, I can't, I can't do that time actually uh, at that time on the Friday because uh, I'm taking my son, you know, to football or I'm taking my daughter swimming or, um, so I think on the one hand, you know, I think people have become a bit more human. I think one just needs to be a bit cautious about where you draw the line. Mm. And, uh, and I think that's what everyone's working on at the moment. Because it's all nice and well to have that, you know, and it's obviously very ESG, right? So I'm going to spend time with my kids. But at the same time, you know, the work does need to get done and you do need to have the conversation. And there's some conversations you need to have sooner rather than later. So, <coughs> sorry, I can't believe I still have hay fever in October <laughs> and in Manchester. Um, so, so, yeah, I think I think that's something that we all still need to kind of work on a little bit. Yeah, where where have you landed in terms of working from home, flexible working practices for your team, and and I suppose the and and what have you observed more generally in across the you know the people you work with outside of your business? I mean, it's very funny because um, I was I was branded the <laughs> the, the walking office <laughs> well before COVID. Because I would often, you know, be on a call and I'm very, very good at multitasking. So I'd be on a call whilst walking to my next meeting. I would pull up my laptop because I need to check something on a spreadsheet. And obviously you can't change formulas on your phone and literally walk down the street on my laptop on the call. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah, it's 
you know, for, for me, things have not really changed. I've always worked whenever I needed to work and I've always had that personality. My sister, for example, is very, very different. She needs to have everything nice and tidy around her. I mean, she's changed since she's been a mom. She's become a mom. But back in the days, I remember, uh, you know, she would she would spend hours tidying her room, making sure everything was neat before she could start studying. Whereas I could always work from anywhere. And uh, and so where I've landed is I like going to the office. I've always liked going to the office. Um, I think the, the interaction with the people you work with is essential, particularly when you have new team members or younger team members that are still, you know, and you're always learning anyway. But, you know, when I go to the office, I learn something new every day and you get so much more out of people, I find there. But there are lots of things you can do from home. And sometimes it is more efficient to, you know, go through a legal doc that, you know, it's going to take you a solid hour to to read through properly and, you know, run through some of the clauses and things like that. And and those things, you know, even well before COVID, I tended to do in the evenings at home. Mm. Um, so I think I think a nice balance and having a bit more flexibility is great. You know, it's like the two of us obviously doing this over Zoom as opposed to sat in a studio. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, and I think the, the flexibility we have is is great, but I think, yeah, the face to face is very important. So I would say to answer your question again, very long winded way. I talk a lot. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, probably three, four days in the office and probably one day from home. But again, you know, like on Friday, sometimes I'd be at home. But today I'm obviously in one of the properties. And um, yeah, so. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's it's. It sort of roughly feels like that's where that's where culturally businesses will end up will be around the three to four day mark. Um, I was with a one of my uh, with a wealth manager um, contact of mine uh, at a company called LGT, and he said that they they're really only in the office two or three days a week. He normally needs to be out on the road going and visiting clients one day, one day a week, and then he normally gets one maybe two days a week at home, and that that sort of thing and I think that um, although he said that they're starting to sort of just creep that uh, the number of days that people go uh, people are in the office so they're having the back office or support staff in the office now four days a week so I think he knows that that's going to that's probably going to going to go ramp up a little bit more but you're right I think that the the balance offering people balance and uh, and and a bit more freedom and flexibility in their lives is is all well and good but um it can't be at the cost of it can't be at the cost of productivity if you're if you're providing someone with the the flexibility so that they can work from home two or three days a week or no maybe two days a week or one day a week or whatever it is um that you you want you obviously want to to layer in the productivity gains that come from the fact that someone can work from home at a more flexible time that suits their suits their needs but you still need to see the output at the same time um and actually for my own for my own sins i've um, since I took a step back from Avonmore from the day-to-day running of things, there have been times where I've probably felt gu- almost guilty that I haven't been working hard enough um, because you're not physically at a desk for 9, 10, 11 hours a day or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, actually, one of the things that has been nice um, has been the fact that um, I have two sons who have sport on a Thursday evening and they're in separate places so my wife and I both have to be kind of on taxi duty and it, it means that I'm not out you know Thursday night would traditionally have been a sort of work social wouldn't it 
And so I can't do any of the work social stuff. And so I missed a couple of leaving dues uh, internally yesterday. Last week, I missed some um, you know, business contacts, had their end of summer parties um, as well, which again, I couldn't attend. And it's good for my liver. It's uh, uh, and it's sort of good good for the connection with with the kids, um, but it can't. There there has to be that balance, doesn't there? You have to have that kind of give and take. Um, how does so? Uh, uh, I don't I don't know actually an awful lot about your. I mean, we've known each other a long time. So disclosure, uh, uh, Vedran and I know each other through um, Variety. The children's charity has the its annual props lunch. We've both been sort of long-standing senior committee members. Um, and that's how we've got to know each other. Um, but despite that, actually, I don't know a huge amount about your personal life. And, um, you know, obviously you're, you, you said that you're a mum and so you have demands, demands of kids and stuff like that. Um, how do you how do you share the parenting responsibilities with um, with your partner um, in, in, in that context? Um, my husband is a rock star, to be honest with you. He's uh, uh, there's so many things I couldn't have done if he wasn't as an active father as he is. You know, I was out with another fellow committee member last night till uh, much later than I was intending to. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I can, get, I can guess who that might have been, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I'm looking relatively fresh uh, in comparison you're to not, how you're not, you're not showing me. it. You're definitely not showing it. <laughs> So, but, so your uh, husband, no, your husband, the rock star. We, we, maybe we shouldn't say it to, shouldn't say it on, uh, you know, in a public forum for Drana. You know, he he, he might he, him, he might get some ideas. Eh? <laughs> don't tell him. No, but he's he's a very very supporting husband, um, and he always has been, to be honest with you. So we, you know, we really help each other out, and um, and our daughter, because obviously we only have the one, is quite independent. And I think, you know, something, some some of that is to do with also her understanding what our jobs are these days, because she's obviously listened into multiple calls um, over, over all the period. And obviously she's met a lot of people we work with. And she she obviously has quite a deep understanding of, you know, for an almost 10 year old of some of the stuff that we just have to do. You know, so when he, he has to go to Germany for work or wherever he needs to, to be or a conference, you know, I'll obviously hold the fort and um, and vice versa. So it's yeah, he's very supportive. We're we're a good team. We're a very good team. Yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting that um, there's some parallels between you and uh, El Marie Marais, who uh, who who was one of the first guests on the podcast, and um, certainly El Marie has has was was actually very generous to her husband Conrad, uh, who's actually a a good friend of mine as well. Um, I, and that I think that she would have struggled to have been able to grow her business without the support uh, support of of her husband. And I think it sounds sounds like this is a similar situation here, which is, um, you know, yes, you're you're the rock star and you're you're the rock star in the boardroom, but you wouldn't be able to do that as effectively as and be a parent at the same time without the support of your husband. So um, it, it's obviously really nice to hear. Uh, nice to hear that that's the case, but um, I'm 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 hearing you talk about your ten-year-old daughter, and and I'm wondering at, at what point you're going to be drafting her in to come and you know start negotiating with uh, you know ne negotiating with the hotel operators and negotiating with the banks and the term sheets and things like that. Uh, how far away is she from from being ready to do that, Vedrano? 
Well, um, I'm very embarrassed to say that her first business meeting was when she was a week old. Oh, wow. I kept the picture. Yeah, I kept the picture because it was just too funny to miss. So I had to go in. It was a Scottish deal. And I had to go in physically to sign some paperwork. And uh, I mean, it was all in London. So I went with the with the pram uh, and the, the offices of that particular lender were in Barclays Square. And uh, obviously, so I took a taxi and uh, and, I, and I got there and they were like, oh, uh, well, we're definitely not pram friendly. I mean, they had basically a few steps and stuff. I was like, no, it's OK if you just help me carry this. And then they insisted on making a name badge for her, <laughs> <laughs> which which I thought was was very, very funny. So. So, yeah, no, so one of my one of my good friends told me many years ago, with great power comes great responsibility. And so I didn't really take a huge amount of time off, you know, mat leave and all of that. But as a result, she came with me to a lot of things. And um, and actually during the, the summer holidays in between um, in between several things that took her to uh, to the hotels. So she's my little, uh, I love it because as a reflex, the first thing she, do, she does is when she walks into a hotel bedroom, she looks at the bathroom and she jumps on the bed. And, uh, and I absolutely love that. She definitely already has the right reflexes. That said, she's not certain she wants to do my job. She thinks <laughs> I work far too much. <laughs> so, I, I, I can imagine though, she probably quite likes, she probably quite, quite likes some of the perks of what you do uh, when you go going in and inspecting hotels. And uh, you know, she, she probably knows the difference between a good and a bad hotel, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> do you think maybe she's going to be a bit spoiled and that, um, you know, when she actually has to start paying for hotels, tells herself um, yeah. <laughs> um i think paying full stop you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so she she will be uh going to the sort of the the be spending so much of your time in france it was she'll uh she she'll be trying to avoid the formula uh, uh oh, hotel option forever <laughs> staying there <laughs> or, or a campanile uh, <laughs> um <laughs> I don't think we've given enough attention to stowaway because I don't know I don't know how many of our audience and how many of our listeners are going to really know about that and what it, actually what a cool concept it is. Um I commute into I commute into Waterloo so I see the sto um the stowaway um physical property it was your that was your first one wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I so I see that on a pretty frequent basis and so uh you know it's uh, I've always been quite uh, quite fascinated by it. Um, tell people about the tell people about the concept, why it's special. Um, uh, apart from the fact that obviously you were part of the founding of the business, but what <laughs> what th there are some very uh, special components to it that that are quite unique. So I mean the the concept I said we I, I co-founded it with with a guy called Charlie Fulford who's um, who's who's always 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 loved the sustainability side of things. So and the way the design has evolved over the period was also because of some of the constraints of where we are in Waterloo, because we're literally next to the train tracks. And um, and this was once used for ammunition storage and all sorts of things. So anyway, I won't bore you with too much of the history. But in essence, the concept is we, we bought secondhand shipping containers from the Netherlands, which were then, you know, because we had to be at a, to, at a certain distance and, you know, you could only buy certain size shipping containers. So we had to cut them in the middle, make them smaller, 
sum them, paint them, and then fit them. And um, and so effectively, it's reused uh, shipping containers. So they were they were used for shipping once. And inside those containers, you basically got a four-star feel, uh, effectively micro units. But when I, when I say micro, I mean, the units are 18.2 square meters, which back in those days was probably one of the smallest apartment hotel units um, you, you could find. And the student housing space obviously had already some of the smaller units, but obviously they didn't have kitchenettes in them. And so it's effectively quite a long room with a really nice bathroom, got marble tiles, molten brown products, uh, really nice kitchen with very snazzy little dishwashers because we had to go like, it's quite compact. And then a huge bed at the end, a bit like Citizen M style. And we went for state of the art mattresses, made sure that, you know, comfort was really our priority with that, with that project, whilst obviously being sustainable. And from day one, you know, we never wanted to have miniatures. We always had the larger containers that we refill um on a on a frequent basis we've insulated it as as much as possible to uh, to avoid obviously any any loss of heat we do have air conditioning and ventilation and heating of course in the rooms because you can't you can't do without in in that type of product and it's you know london does get hotter and hotter as we all know so it's a necessary evil and you know Aircon units are very very efficient these days so they don't consume that much we've got pb solar on the roof as well and so, so yeah, and that how, uh, that opened back in. And I was gonna say, and how, how many and how many keys is that in total? The Waterloo asset was uh, was proof of concept, so it's a baby asset. It's only twenty keys. Okay. But that also came with, you know, we had to think very hard about how we're gonna make only twenty keys work, because you know you need to have a certain number of keys for your product to to actually make sense mm -hmm. from an operational standpoint. So we, you know, very early on, we developed an app um, to basically have remote check-in and check-out. So we don't have a reception uh, using the, the your phone as the key, but we also have like little keypads. Obviously, the code changes between between all the guest stays. Was getting that technology to integrate back in the days, you know, before obviously this was all popular. So yeah, we did remote check-in, check-out, all of that. And then um, we uh, we also partnered up with a great concept on the ground floor. Uh, two amazing ladies called Laura and Kiki. So their concept's called Unwind. Play yeah. on words, wine in the middle. And so there's sommeliers by background. And um, and the way that started was very much they write the, the wine list first, and then they work with the chefs to to come up with seasonal menus. Okay, so so, so you effectively have a restaurant, you have a sort of restaurant and wine bar on the ground floor, and then you've got the the, the rooms above. Yeah. And so um, you said that that opened 2018. Mm-hmm how how long was that in the planning like because i guess the the execution of that uh, i know building next to near railways as you say is is very challenging you need you, your contractors need to have like crazy amounts of in you know ins uh, insurances as well so you need to work with very strong contractors um how long did it take you to go from sort of concept to to delivery um to you know because uh, that that would be quite fascinating for our listeners to hear yeah, so my business partner, Charlie, initially got involved with it probably in the early 2010s, 11s, 12s, kind of that, that, that time. Um, I crossed path with him back in 13 and I looked at it wearing my PE hat on um, and we tried we, we tried to make it work as all sorts of things. You know, we looked at hostel there, we looked at loads of things and we couldn't quite get the numbers to pencil. Mm -hmm. And then 
kind of we both stepped away from well I stepped away from it and we reconnected at a charity uh, dinner actually many many uh, many many months later and we agreed to to go for a coffee and he was still basically um you know persistent he's very persistent he was trying to still kind of figure out how he was going to able to going to be able to make it work and we sat down and we basically exchanged ideas and uh, and so that was probably around 15 and then I raised the capital we we needed to um you know on our side obviously to to make it happen and because it wasn't the largest of, con of projects you know going back to your question about contractors you know you couldn't have gone to one of the big boys Mm. Um, so, you, you know, ultimately you, you end up with a much smaller contractor because of the contract value. And obviously that was not without its challenges because we ended up having to, you know, construction manage a lot of the stages of the project. But uh, got there in the end. <laughs> and, and and in terms of did you did you have to get the planning yourself and in terms of the land do you own the land or is that is that leased from uh, from a from a landowner or, or how how does that work? Yeah, so basically it's a it's a it's a it's a leasehold. It's a leasehold yeah. for Creel Stroke Archco on the freehold, and we've got the the leasehold. Okay, and and then and so they helped you with the planning, or did you have to do the planning? Uh, the planning oh, consultant. Like no, yourself? I mean the, the the arrangement on this particular one was very much, you know, we dealt with pretty much everything. So yeah, yeah, I, I was thinking Network Rail probably not going to go and go through the hassle of getting planning permission on that was the planning permission difficult or or were you know I guess that's Lambeth there isn't it were, were, were they quite accommodative because of the sustainable sustain, sustainability side of things and uh, I mean and back in those days yeah back in those days people didn't really care so much about the sustainable side no. of things to be frank um, but no I mean we, we ended up with some really funny quirks like they wanted the the doors to be bulletproof and all sorts of weird and wonderful things but uh it's probably not the most challenging one I've ever done. Let's put it this way. But no. uh, but Charlie, Charlie, in fairness to him, uh, did did the bulk of that work. Uh, and so, and then rolling on from uh, rolling on from one in Waterloo. So the so what other uh, what other stowaway sites have you got? And 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 presumably there the scale of those is is very different um, for yeah, for obvious reasons. Like you said, that it's twenty a twenty key site is probably not not the, the size the optimal size for uh for an operation like that no the answer is i mean going into covid we had a pipeline of about six or seven mm -hmm. um and then obviously we ended up canning a lot of them uh we are working on a few others at the moment but um we we haven't opened the second story yet you haven't okay fine no so so uh so if there are some some people with some land or or some sites that uh that you'd like to have a chat with Vedrana about for the stowaway concept, or if you like the stowaway concept or the idea of it, um, definitely get in touch and uh, and and ask uh, ask Vedrana uh, what she thinks of the site and, and maybe maybe it'll work. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, no. Look, any city centre locations close to transport hubs, we're very keen to 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 do at least another couple in London. I would say. Mm -hmm. um you know could be Waterloo Paddington King's Cross like you know any of those hubs would be brilliant but you know happy to go a bit further south from Waterloo towards Elephant and Castle and that neck of the woods as well um not that I'm madly in love with Lambeth but they're actually not <laughs> they're not too bad of a council they're not too bad no. probably shouldn't be saying this yeah <laughs> um <laughs> there are definitely some more challenging ones and then yeah I mean growing in the regions and obviously some of the some of the 
the, the lovely European city centers, you know. But as we know, planning is obviously a bit more challenging. And it's funny, I traded war stories with uh, one of the guys from Box Park because we both opened kind of similar timings. And there are certain things that are great uh, with containers, but there are others that obviously come with challenges. So you end up spending a lot more on IT, for example, because obviously you're effectively in a metal box. So mm. your signal is not great. And getting the Wi-Fi to work just means that you have sensors or more sensors than you would normally do and things like that. So, yeah, there's certainly a lot of lessons learned. And we're definitely looking at, you know, we would do things slightly differently next time around. So probably not full-blown containers going forwards, but definitely reusing containers as well. And still, you know, obviously keeping the, the history and the, the USPs from uh, from the first one. Well, uh, I'm fascinated to see how, how it plays out. And uh, yeah, you're absolutely, uh, absolutely supportive of this of the concept i think it's i think it's great although i think you would have found maybe two years ago uh when the the cost of shipping containers went through the roof uh that that would have been quite an interesting time to to look at your build costs but thankfully i think those are now back down to more sensible levels um just talking more generally from a business perspective what what would you say your like your biggest the thing that gives you the the biggest frustration what really grinds your gears at the moment uh, or has historically you know ground your gears and really wound you up um you know particularly working in the real estate and real estate finance industry i think the lack of certainty is um is very difficult right now but i would say what frustrates me the most is the fact that everything takes a lot longer than it could or than it has historically uh, I think that's probably my biggest frustration. You know, simple things like, you know, talking about pure real estate, you agree a deal with a tenant on a retail unit, you have to go and get consent from your lender and and all of that. And you agree all of that and you get all of your consents. And to get those consents, it's taken probably a couple of months longer than it should have done because it's only a tiny retail unit. And then you sign the documents and you're two weeks down the line and Sale hasn't completed, but the tenant has signed and the tenant has uh, paid their, their rent deposit down. And all they want to do is crack on with their fit outs. And yeah, so I would say I would say everything takes too long at the moment. And so we're back to our efficiency side of things. I think certain professions really should not be working from home. Not that I'm talking about lawyers, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, just to be clear, Vedrana was talking about lawyers. Um, <laughs> yes, lawyers, spicy hot takes are don't work from home. We need you in the office office doing your jobs where you belong. Um, no, that's quite I mean, it's an interesting point, Vedrana. I think that, you know, I think it's it's no great secret that my my biggest frustration is is the planning system but it's the delays in the planning system and um you know again another group of people who probably shouldn't be working from home are people who work in local authorities in the planning department they should be in the office working diligently on cases and not looking to get in the way of not looking to get in the way of um of of, of people's projects because you know ultimately the there's going to be a lack there's only someone said to me about three weeks ago, um, I was a, a guest at a Clay Pigeon Shoot and, and he said that there was only going to be 100, 110,000 residential units going to be delivered in the UK next year. And some of that is due to the fact that the national house builders don't have, uh, you know, don't have the appetite to get on and build. But 
you then have the added factor that the SME house building sector is being massively stifled by the lack of planning consents that are coming through. And, um, you know, to the point where a number, number of the sites that our strategic land business is working on, um, we've had to go and appeal for non-determination. So basically, your planning officer cannot be bothered to actually look at the scheme because they're they they're too busy working on you know myth, you know Mr and Mrs Smith uh you know conservatory extension or they're mm. looking at the the Barrett Homes 300 unit scheme but they don't want to look at the 20 unit scheme that the house builder as soon as they have the consent they're going to go and take that and start building it um mm. and so yeah the the delays in the planning system are, are, are frustration for me so it's 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 a similar and common theme uh without question yeah no no i mean I, I certainly share share those frustrations we've had an insane um case i, I won't say which city it's in but basically uh, cladding that really needs to to be tweaked and the determination deadline was uh, november last year still haven't got a response that's crazy i mean and we're talking about cladding you know after grenfell yeah it and yeah. it's you know, it's just unacceptable. It's not. It's not. It's not. It's infuriating. And as Mahir Mehta, who was on uh, was on a few weeks ago, and he's his podcast was released, I think, uh, from as of today's date, about a week and a half ago. He was he was a former planning officer, and he's now a very successful residential developer. And he he's he made a very fair point, which is that when you make a planning application, you're paying a fee, and people expect. Normally, when you pay a fee for something, you expect a service. But we have this absolutely bizarre system where you pay a fee and don't get a service. And it, it is an absolute it's a, it should be a national scandal that these things these things play out like that. It really should. Um, I'm conscious of time and, I, and, and I'm very and I'm grateful, very grateful for the time you've given. So I think we're going to maybe start to wind, uh, wind down a little bit now and, and ask a few more, a few more personal questions before we, we go. But um, that sounds good because I do need to go and spend some time <laughs> with my general manager. <laughs> so um, you obviously work very hard. You, you try to be you're also trying to strike a good work, uh, work life balance. What what are the positive habits that maybe you're engaged in that that try to help you support your lifestyle and well-being? I mean, I've, I've, I used to be huge in my yoga and uh, really did. You know, I was one of those crazies that was in the studio four or five times a week, if not if not more, and did self-practice whenever I wasn't able to uh, to hit the studio. Um, so that that used to be my healthiest habit for sure. Um, but obviously that kind of got kicked out, well, got out of the habit during the, the various lockdowns. So I took up running and uh, running, it doesn't give me as many benefits as, as yoga does. I would say potentially more from like a mental standpoint. I still get a good kick from it. But uh, yeah, I would say uh, I love my running, but uh, I need to get back to my yoga. Uh, That's okay. my, my target. That's my target. Yeah, Hopefully it's, it's, as soon as I can. It's it's uh, it's something I need to do more of. Uh, I spend, I like to go in the gym. I like to play tennis, but I'm I really really now that I'm the wrong side of forty, need to start working on the flexibility and um, uh, because I think that that will have uh, real benefits in my later years, shall we say. So uh, I'll have oh, to take a leaf out of your book. 
have to take and, and on the running side have you got any plans for marathons or 5ks 10ks anything like that any challenges that you want to that you want to achieve uh, no not really not really uh, i have i have enough uh, targets in my <laughs> life to, <laughs> to to add to the list the, the running can just be for you for sure exactly you you mentioned peter cohen uh, obviously a big influence in your life um would you say he's the biggest uh, a sort of uh, biggest influence from a from a professional standpoint or, if, or are there other uh, are there other people who kind of been key mentors um that that you've worked with along the way i mean who've who've been big influences in in your life um you know including peter you can include peter of course but you know there are any other people that have been big influences in in your life both professionally and personally I mean, there, there are a lot of people I admire uh, and there are a lot of people that have been very helpful. I think having friends, you know, I was at the Women in um, in Property Awards uh, last night and the first one uh, of it, Jean, and, um, and one of the ladies that got uh, Lifetime Achievement said something that is very, very true. It's like you have to have friends. You know, you have to you absolutely have to have friends. And without friends in, you know, for any entrepreneur, but any person, you, you cannot, uh, you know, you cannot succeed in the same way. And uh, and I would say, talking about inspiration, but I would talk more about friendship. Uh, so Peter, of course, was was a wonderful man. But his um, his wife at the time told me off massively at well at his funeral. She said, you, you got to stop telling everyone that, uh, you know, he was so great, great for you because he loved you. He absolutely loved you. And he learned so much from you. And you guys always had a partnership. And yeah, I would say partnerships and friendships is really what's made me who I am today. You learn from each and every one of your relationships. I mean, picking picking some of them is very difficult because there's so many that have been so helpful and so, you know, so much there for me. I mean, my husband, for starters, you know, um, and, uh, you know, my, my father was a huge inspiration as well. And he was always there for me. You know, it's um, but then from from an industry standpoint, I've met some incredible people over the years, you know, who are and will remain friends, hopefully for life. Uh, that's that's wonderful to hear. And and I think that, you know, w- without laboring the point, real estate as an industry is built on relationships. And, um, you, you know, you no matter no matter how big or how small the person you're dealing with, you, you know, you, you you must treat everyone uh, in, in a positive, constructive, respectful manner, because you just don't know when they're going to turn up and when they can they can help you or they can, you know, you you can benefit each other. So, um, I I you know I fully endorse uh, what you're saying with regards to to friendships and partnerships. That makes absolutely perfect sense to me. Um, you spoke about women in property awards. Uh, we it, assuming assuming that you you may not have had the lifetime achievement award yet but there's there's still plenty of time uh you know on on that front how how do you see the how do you, how how have you seen the influence of women in property in the property industry evolve over the past decade or so do you feel do you feel now that the playing field is 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 level or or do you still think that the industry has a bit of a way to go to allow women to re- really express themselves and be as successful as they can be um in you know in, in the real estate industry 
I mean, there's there's been a huge amount of progress, you know, even during my during my career to date. You know, things have evolved hugely, you know, between when I started and now. But uh, but there's a long way to go. Uh, I think it's very sector dependent. I think there's some there's some, um, you know, aspects of real estate where where it's easier to be a woman today and where I would say partners are probably more on par um, between obviously law firms, for example. You know, there are some some incredible women lawyers that have generally been recognized. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the the law society has done a very good job when it comes to that. And um, when it comes to other sectors, I mean, on the pure investment side of things, you know, there are more women for sure, but nowhere near as many as men. Um, talking about the board level, you know, the C's still quite, quite heavily weighted uh, towards men, I would say. So I think there's there's some some room to 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 go there, and you know, bluntly speaking, I think salary differences remain still you know not not quite on par. Do you do you think the real estate industry is doing enough to attract uh, to attract women to to the to well, I said the profession? It's obviously there's lots of different professions, but you know, with, with, across the various professions in the real estate industry, do you think enough is being done to attract younger women and girls? into it because i i think the the argument and i wouldn't say argument but the my observation would be that i think historically the it's it's just not been it, it it's always felt like a, a sort of industry that women just aren't naturally drawn to in the same way um it and i wouldn't you know and and again it's just you know it's my my observation and of, of course it's probably wrong but I, w- I wouldn't always say that women have been denied access to the real estate industry. I think in a lot of ways um, that they, they just haven't n- as naturally gravitated towards it. Do you think that uh, do you think enough is being done now to attract uh, attract women and young girls into uh, 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 into the into the real estate professions? Um, I think I think a lot of companies and a, a lot of the sectors have made have made the, the right noises. I think there's definitely been some progress on that front. Um, for me, it's not really down to the industries, to be frank, to tell women, come work for us. You know, at the end of the day, people should be hiring people not because they're a man or a woman. You know, they should hire them because they're the best, the very best person for that particular job. Um, you know, and I think I think women are generally well-educated, you look at the UK, you look at the percentages, I think, you know, um, it's difficult. It's really difficult because, you know, I'm a woman, uh, but I've not always been given a chance, you know, throughout my Mm. career. Um, You know, I've not gotten some jobs, I don't think because I was not qualified enough or because I wasn't good enough. There's some jobs I didn't get because perhaps I didn't know the right people within that business. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, maybe, I mean, I guess you made the point there, which is that you shouldn't really, you shouldn't necessarily hire based on gender, you should hire based on ability. And so is the question, then maybe it begs the question, um, does it matter? Is it important? Um, you know, should, does, does it, should it make a difference? I mean, certainly, I, certainly it's, it's nice. It's always better and nicer to see a more diverse, uh, more diver- diverse 
workforce or you know or, you know people in in this sector um but maybe maybe the the conclusion is it maybe we shouldn't focus on that we should focus on ability i don't know um you know just make it meritocratic um we we maybe can go on for hours about that yeah. um okay last question vadrana if you were to give some self talk to your younger self um what advice would you give to yourself and at what age would and what age would you be would you give that kind of positive uh guidance or pep talk without hesitation never never ever hesitate to ask for favors and probably before i started working yeah um, i'm a, i used to be a very very proud person and uh, and i used to want to do everything on my own and i wanted to succeed and i never want i never wanted anyone else anyone's help and and i learned later down the line that actually people love helping you generally and yeah and had i started asking for favors earlier in my life things could have evolved slightly mm. differently yeah I, that's a it's a good observation and and i think a great piece of advice um and what and and i would say i think people like to be asked for favors because it makes them feel important uh it makes them feel wanted and needed and i think everyone wants to feel wanted and needed so uh, a great bit of advice right vadrana thank you so much for joining us it's been uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and uh, it's been fascinating and hopefully inspiring for many of many of our listeners um if someone has been inspired or, or excited by uh, by by hearing you speak uh, and certainly i have uh, i've i've written a, a number of different things down that that i now uh, have got as ideas as a consequence um how can someone reach out to you um do you have social profiles uh, or 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 perhaps yeah, you want to direct well, people I'm to your, your website i must confess i'm really not the best on linkedin um i would say probably email is the easiest uh, okay. my email address is vedrana so first name at cl-capital.com brilliant well uh vedrana thank you again for coming on uh coming and joining us uh it's been an absolute pleasure and uh we look forward to having you on again soon thank you so much take care bye <laughs> A big thank you goes out to the official sponsor of the Property Funder podcast, Avonmore Capital, a property bridging and development lender located here in London. They, as much as me, understand the importance of somebody's story and how they got to where they are. Lending on projects from just £250,000 across the entirety of England and Wales, their understanding of all development backgrounds and can help support you at any stage in a scheme, even if you just have one brick down. Visit www avonmorecapital.com to find out more about how they can help you in your development journey. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. I hope you can go away having learned something new and even picked up some new things to apply to your day today. Catch us in the next episode for another interesting story.